0: Welcome to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. I'm one of your hosts, Nikki from House of Faith and Freedom. You can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org as well as on Facebook and Instagram. And today I'm here with my co host and the founder of House of Faith and Freedom, Hannah.
1: Thank you so much, Nikki.
0: Today, we are going to be joined by
1: a repeat guest for part two of our conversation on the complex issue of spiritual abuse. We're going to welcome back Ann Johnson, who has decades of experience as a social worker and counselor who has specialized in crisis intervention, advocacy, and counseling around abuse, grief, and trauma. Before we jump into part two here, I do want to say that although abuse can uh, affect anyone, there can be both men and women who are victims of it. Today we are going to be speaking more specifically around women as victims of abuse, especially in the context of misused scripture. This is because often the scriptures that are misused in a spiritual context uh, are around male authority and female submission. That does not mean that they are the only individuals who are abused spiritually. It's just going to be the context that we're speaking in today. Ann Johnson, thank you so much again for sitting in with us on this conversation. And I'll turn it over to you for for sort of the opening in our topic.
2: Thank you again, Hannah and Nikki. This is a, a very compelling topic for sure. What I'd like to do is address the woman who is questioning her relationship with her husband. This is a woman who has very deep religious convictions. Being married to a Christian, a believer, she has this mindset of talking about God, praying together, thinking about ministry together, and that is her heart. And she has persuaded herself, this is the way it's going to be, because this is what believers are. And this is what they do, but it begins to break down over years. She has a strong influence in her life through the church, through pastors, and of course, her spouse. And they are authority figures, or she is persuaded to understand that these particular individuals have authority. And so she yields to that authority even though it may inflict hurt, pain, or confusion in her world, in her life. This is what we're going to address today. And I know personally about being stuck, trapped, confused, and to question, is this love? Does love look like yelling? Does love look like accusing does love look like oh if you're a christian then why not obey me why not do what i'm telling you to do what to read where to go who to see? there was something not right because my relationship did not reflect christ jesus his humility His lowliness, his love, I didn't understand. And that's why I, I go back to the church. And then I'm told to stay in it, pray. And I do for years. Nothing stops. So I go back to the pastor to say, can you explain this to me? And I'm told, trust God and he'll take care of you. Just trust him pray more, do more. What might you be doing to provoke your husband? And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what I'm doing to provoke my husband. Nobody heard what I was saying. I became the problem. Without the power of the Holy Spirit in me, indwelling me, comforting me, guiding, I would never have stepped away. I would never have stepped away.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. I want to echo what you're speaking in terms of going to leadership within the church and speaking to that kind of confusion. I think oftentimes I recognize not every case, but oftentimes it takes a long process for a wife to even get to the point of speaking up. At that moment when they are speaking up, they're usually at their height of confusion, at their height of voicelessness, ready to just, you know, listen and take in whatever. Leadership would want them to know just to help with this confusion, bypassing, sadly, their own voice that does commune with the spirit. They have a voice in their heart welling from the spirit, but they don't know it anymore or trust it enough. And here they are, as vulnerable as vulnerable can be, stepping into that place in front of leadership. Two things come to mind here, for me anyway. One of them
1: is harking back to the last episode or part one of the series where we talked about spiritual abuse fundamentally coming from someone inserting themselves and becoming the authority figure that stands between God and the individual. and acting as though they must be the bypass that any word from God or any truth must go through. And I also want to say, authority is not inherently wrong. God has set up authority figures for good reason. It's how the authority is used that matters. And so, of course, there is a lovely aspect, a very healthy aspect that can exist from going to leaders that we trust, from going to individuals that we trust, the opinion of, the insights of, the knowledge of, or advice that is a healthy thing to do and when we have good shepherds and we have good pastors and we have good leaders that that are able to mm-hmm. impart that it's very healthy and very empowering the issue is when either purposefully someone is bending scripture or misapplying it or taking it out of context in order to maintain their own power and keep someone else subjected or When a pastor or a leader or an authority figure is very ill-prepared to address or understand abuse and spiritual abuse. And in those situations, I think that their um, sometimes very well-meaning advice can actually just serve to keep a victim further oppressed. Because something that they may say in the context of, oh, let's say an unhealthy marriage um, which could be like, you know, try to add in more respect or serve more or whatever. That said in an unhealthy relationship may be good advice if both people are pursuing selfish endeavors and it's, it's leading to distance and a, a negative outcome in their relationship. But that said in the context of abuse to a victim, that is the final nail in the coffin that is going to keep them subjugated to need someone who's misusing authority. And so I want to start out, you know, this conversation by saying, we are not anti-authority. We're anti-misuse of authority, you know, and that is a very fine line because misuse of authority can be done intentionally and unintentionally just by ignorance or by lack of
2: knowledge. I'm glad you brought that up because it is about the misuse of scripture about authority wanting to remain in power and control. And one way to do that, of course, is to use scripture to keep that power and control. And let's clarify something about the cycle of violence. Let's go to James 2.26, which is what honestly stepped in to help me reframe and end the violence or the abuse. He says in James 2.26, faith without works is dead. It's in that deep faith and relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit leads into that action. And the action is love and compassion and caring and listening. So he says, let's look at the action. So that was a beginning for me. Listen carefully. I hope I say this correctly. My faith in God motivated me to try to end what I believed was not of Christ, was not love. I seemed to be the recipient of ridicule or sarcasm distorting what I'm saying, and my action now is coming to you and saying, help. That's where my faith is, but it was denied. It was, well, where is your faith in? Does he say he's sorry? Yeah, he does. Well, forgive him. So I wanted to learn about forgiveness and true repentance. I'm supposed to love and forgive. Well, I'm learning that repentance is much deeper than remorse. Repentance is about coming to an understanding in in spirit and soul and mind and heart that any wrongdoing or abuse or accusation or hurt or pain, repentance is about understanding I sin against God first. That repentance is a a deep, deep sense before God.
1: Couple things on repentance, because I think this is a really, really deeply important distinction to make between remorse and repentance because remorse is that I'm feeling sorry. And that could be, I'm sorry. I got caught. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm suffering the consequences. It could even be like, I'm sorry that I did hurt you. But it's not going to result in change necessarily. It's remorse is a posture that says, because I said I'm sorry, or because I cried, or because I looked really sorry or promised things, I want things to go back to the way they were like immediately. I would like all of the negative things that I'm experiencing right now to now go away because I have apologized. It's a very simplistic view, a very transactional view of relationship. I think when we move into the realm of repentance, like you so eloquently said, um, it's so much more about our posture before God first. And it's that really deep grief of having sinned. And there are two things I want to point out with repentance. One of them is that I think when we repent, when we truly, truly repent, it requires letting go of our need for power and control and submitting those things to God's power and God's control, God's way of viewing the world, right? And that is so key because abusers crave power and control. It's the root seed that grows the fruit of abuse, this need for power, this need for control. And so when you have to submit that to God in repentance, that's going to change the internal seed that's growing these sinful fruits. Even when you talk about faith and action being um, two things that cannot be separated. There's the faith, the seed, there's the action, the fruit. And when we look at abuse being the seed, power and control, the fruit, abuse, you have to change the seed first before you can ever change the behavior or hope that behavior changes. The other thing is that often when we look at repentance in scripture, the word that's used is metanoia, which is a change in mind in those who abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life. So it embraces both a recognition of sin and a sorrow for it and a hearty amendment. Those all go together. It is often paired in scripture with the word epistrophe, specifically in the book of Acts. It's multiple times in Acts 3 and Acts 26, which is the idea of turning back and turning in a new direction or turning towards God. We can't separate out repentance from action in the same way we can't separate out space from action. They have to go together. And once we've separated them out, we're dealing with a shallower thing. We're dealing with behavior modification,
2: not behavioral change. Boy, that's the word that comes to me with that behavioral change, Hannah, is... There is true transformation. There is the tonal exchange inside. I want to say something. Uh, you triggered something. Matthew 10, 16 states, be wise on forgiveness. That's what that is saying. Be wise as serpents and harmless as dogs. What does that mean? That verse can show per se that she should be wise about protecting herself from further mistreatment, if you will. And forgiving her husband does not mean setting herself up to be mistreated again. She can forgive him and still have him face the consequences of his actions. That's huge. Yeah.
1: I think we have to separate out our understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation, just like we have to separate out remorse and repentance. And understand that forgiveness is it inherently it's an internal recalibration on the part of the wronged party. So the victim in this case, like that forgiveness is going to be a process that they work through with God about letting go of a desire for retribution. That does not mean that there should be reconciliation necessarily. It doesn't mean that they should forget. I think we often equate forgiveness and forgetting together. But those are not exactly ideas that have to go together, right? You can still be wise. And this is actually a pretty perfect segue into a scripture that is very commonly used in spiritual abuse. And that is uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 5 where it says that love keeps no record of wrongs. And I think there is a real tendency for abusers to want to use this scripture to say, you are keeping a record of wrongs if you are still considering or thinking about or bringing into our relationship past abuses that you've forgiven me for. Like, how dare Mm -hmm. you still bring those up, right? Don't keep a record of wrongs. This is also used for victims who are um, keeping a record for safety of abuses that they're going through. And that's actually something as uh, advocates, we frequently tell victims to do is like write down everything, write down everything that's happening, write down all of the instances. And this scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, can be used to shame or guilt or tell a victim that they are somehow sinning by keeping a written record or by being wise around the fact that these past abuses or injustices have happened to them. Mm-hmm. How would you talk to a victim about that first in context and how it is different than the record of wrongs that's being addressed by the
2: Apostle Paul in this in this instance? The first thing that actually comes to me, and I can say this on a personal level, as well, is that setting limits and loving are compatible. It's not about keeping wrongs. It is about setting limits. You see, this mindset of forgiveness isn't about keeping wrongs, but it is about setting limits and seeking help to explain what is going on, And to seek support, not to bring a relationship to a close right away, but to help be able to, in a loving way, come to a place that says, no, I've got to learn how to set a limit because this just isn't right.
0: But I love what you said in regards to love not keeping a record of wrongs. It's not keeping a record of wrongs. She's trying to address sin and what's dark she's trying to address it and that comes out of a heart of worship and so here you have someone that's just trying to explain it and then for it to be capped off or cut off in fact in in some cases when bringing forth documentation to leadership it was said well This is keeping a record of wrongs, and that is the evidence for you having a hard heart. So I don't want to look at your documentation, actually. So things can get confused and distorted. Yeah,
2: we have a tendency to think that love is like, well, I've just got to keep loving and letting this happen. But love is about saying, I'm going to care about you in a way that looks different, feels different, acts different. And I won't allow you to continue in the manner in which you have whatever's coming out of your heart toward me, whether it's accusation, whether it's oppressive language, whether it's condemnation, because out of the heart um, these words... And I'm realizing I want something better for you. Heart transformation, if you will. When we
1: start thinking about love, not necessarily in the context of uh, the wishy-washy kind of love that can allow enablement. like When we think of love with boundaries, love with consequence, love with respect, that kind of genuine love, Uh, It really does drive down to motivation. It does drive down to what is the motivation behind the limit? Is it, this is going to create someone who is like easier for me to manipulate, who is going to cater to me better? Or is it for the goodness and the righteousness of that person, right? Is it a correction that is godly? because of a sin that is rampant in their life? Or is it a correction that is coming out of a place of wanting to control, wanting to coerce, wanting to benefit self more
2: than that? So does that in some way move us into the question of of submission? That's huge. Here is where submission gets confusing. When it's done out of the self, the flesh, uh, the pride, the ego. I can tell you stories of women submitting under the most incredible moments of sorrow or grief in their own life. And yet again, her heart is saying, this isn't love that I am to submit to him. So how do we help her? How is I help to understand what submission is. Well, the very first thing I can remember is if I don't submit, I'll not only make him unhappy, but I might lose my relationship with God. That's terrifying. It would be helpful for women to know the word um, mutual submission. Let's go to um, Ephesians And read this context, Ephesians 5, 15 to 33. If we read that, we can understand mutual submission. Submitting one to another in the fear of God. Both of you joining. Learning together what submission actually means according to Scripture, not according to man's rule of authority but learning together.
1: Yeah, I think to put a little context here, we're looking at Ephesians five. And I think sometimes when we look at this chapter specifically, and even the fact that I'm saying chapter, like scripture was not written originally in chapters with verses with subheadings, those are things that were added later in order to make it more easy to reference and find things and indigestible pieces, but Ephesians was written as a singular letter. And one of the great injustices, I think, when I look at Ephesians 5 is that there is a break between Ephesians 5.21 and Ephesians 5.22 says, and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then in most translations, there's a subheading break. And all of a sudden, in that subheading break, it says, why and husbands? And then we start reading as if verse 22 was the first verse, which says, why submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord? And we have separated it out from the context that literally the verse before says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? So submission starts mutually on our standing as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is where it begins. It has to begin with that degree of equality, whether or not you come from a complementarian background or an egalitarian background. Like, it has to start there. And as we move into this understanding then of authority, and depending on which kind of theological perspective you're coming from here, even if you come from a complementarian perspective in which There is male authority or male headship inside of the marriage. We have to understand what authority inside of a godly marriage looks like. Authority in the context of scripture has always meant some form of service. It has always been coming underneath Mm. something to lift it up. And we see that even in Ephesians 5, as you go on and it talks about husbands loving your wives, serving them making them the best that they can be, right? It comes from a place of service that is the appropriate use of authority. And then when we look at the idea of submission in, in scripture, there's multiple places where submission is mentioned or authority is mentioned. There's the wife to husband in Ephesians five and Colossians and first Peter there's civilian to government and see that in first Peter and Romans 13 and Titus three We see church members to elders or leadership. That's in Hebrews 13. We see Christians to one another. Romans 7, again, in Ephesians 5, 21. We see believers to God or to Christ. James 4 and Job 22. There are these various places authority is mentioned. But the reality is that there are going to be situations or instances in which these calls to submit to authority are going to clash. Who do you submit to in this situation. And I think when we come into these situations in scripture, especially within governments that are corrupted, when there is a clash between authorities to submit to, you submit to the one that is in alignment with God, who's the ultimate authority. When we look at a husband that is abusing authority in a way that is not Christ-like, the wife has no obligation to submit to that behavior her obligation lands first to submit to God. And God is not asking her to submit to the sinful whims of misused authority. And so I feel like we have to understand that context when we talk about submission, because no matter what theological camp you land in, as far as wives and husbands and male authority in marriage, like, regardless, abuse is a wild misuse of authority, of power. And I think here is where we start moving into the suffering question, right? Which is like, well, what about persecution? All throughout scripture, it talks about submitting to persecution, like turn the other cheek, right? We start using and throwing out these phrases, but I would say that a, it was for uh, godly character that they were being persecuted or for godly pursuits. And B is all throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus flee from avoidable suffering. He eventually does submit to the persecution of the cross because it is unavoidable, because it is necessary. But we see Jesus run from crowds probably three or four times throughout the New Testament, and I can pull those verses later, but um, flee from crowds that are trying to harm him crowds that have wicked intention towards him. He does not stay and submit to them when it is avoidable. And so when we look at abuse in a marriage and we know that it's happening, that is avoidable suffering. There is no obligation to stay inside of that suffering.
0: Mm -hmm. That's like when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, yes, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I think that's that's the difference. Wow. I don't know that
2: I could have articulated what you both have said any clearer because this husband's love your wife, love them as Christ loved the church. This is a calling in their spirit, in their soul. And I've said it so many, many, many times. If she has gone for help, for an intervention, but he claims to love, he offers up. His love for her looks like, as he describes, she would not have gone for support, for help. No woman would. So this love, if it's genuine, if it is of Christ, she would never go to seek or to talk or to share, or to get answers, yes. she would not be confused, mm-hmm. earnestly. And I think
1: when you mention the reality that if someone is in a relationship in which that authority is being used to serve, there's very little purpose for them to come forward and risk so much. And you think, The Western church, for whatever reason, has a very deep and inherent skepticism towards disclosures of abuse. The first questions we're always asking when someone comes forward and and says that something is happening in their relationship and it might be abusive is, what if they aren't telling the truth? Mm -hmm. Instead of thinking, what if they are telling the truth? And... There are a lot of reasons for why we have that inherent skepticism. And I think it's something that you know you as a listener should certainly take the time to self-examine about why is this such a gut reaction for us to end <laughs> someone who is accused instead of believing someone who is coming forward. Victims have so much to lose because of the inherent skepticism, they will most likely be doubted. They will most likely be, given very bad advice or told to go back or told to submit more or told to whatever.
0: Well, and I just want to back that up and saying, yes, they do have much to lose because, well, if you think about the learning curve that it took for even a survivor, a victim to come to understand what they are in, they know on the front end, you know, many were married 10 15, 20, 30 years before they come to understand what they are in. They know when they approach anyone else, let alone leadership of any kind in the church. And that's where I have much compassion for leadership. For those that maybe just don't understand what abuse is, we get that. We get that. But can there be, and this is my prayer and our prayer, can there be a posture of a desire to learn and to understand the heart of victims. And can they have the posture of, I want to shepherd well in the realms of abuse? Yeah.
1: You have an opportunity, I think is what what we're saying here. As a shepherd, as a pastor, as a leader, as an authority figure, you have an opportunity, like a really key opportunity to shepherd someone uh forward into understanding into safety into growth into health into well-being by understanding this issue and i think too like here's a here's a nice litmus test for you if someone comes forward and you are uncertain about if their disclosure is true here is a here's a a good little uh Thing to think through in your mind. The vast majority of women that come forward to some kind of a spiritual leader or authority to disclose abuse are not looking for fallout for their spouse. They're looking for relief. The thing they are asking you for is how do I get this to stop? How do I get relief from the abuse? How do I get relief from the oppression? How do I get relief from the confusion? How do I get relief from the sexual violence I'm experiencing. like They're asking literally for the most basic thing. They just don't want to be abused in their house. And so it's not like they're coming forward with these wicked, evil intentions of how do I destroy the life of my partner? Most of them don't want that. Most of them will go out of their way to avoid those consequences. And if anything, this time, right back to the beginning of the conversation, they have a very hard time with the idea of setting limits. Those are things they tend to not necessarily want because they're uncomfortable. But the reality is they're they're necessary things. They're a byproduct of what is required in order for the abuse to stop. But genuinely, I think if you if you asked most women who have come forward when they've come forward, what is it that you're looking for out of this conversation, they would probably say I just want the abuse to stop. Or I just want to understand the situation I'm in.
0: Or they might not even know how to say that. But it would be helpful for a shepherd to know that that's probably what they just need.
2: Well, that being said, just think about this. It can't be the first time that a leader has heard probably the same things, right? Or the same questions. But if they're aware and mindful that they're hearing something over and over again, seems to me there would be some sense of motivation to want to understand what are they hearing. To me, that shepherd who has a teachable spirit, the ego isn't there, but a teachable spirit, just listening, that lowliness of just being meek enough to hear her and have that shepherd be the one that As Hannah said, well, too, she's coming to want to stop something. And she might not even know what it is. It's just not right. Like you said, Nikki, something just isn't right. And no one, I
1: can say this from, from my experience of working with victims, No one wants to save that marriage more and has worked harder on saving that marriage than a victim. I mean, by this time they have come forward, it is often 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years into their relationship that they have been going to counseling, that they have been seeking help, that they have been working on it at home, that they have been bending themselves into pretzels, Um, a phrase Nikki often uses is like professional fire extinguishers. Like they just exist. To keep their relationship in some semblance of order, and they care fiercely about their marriages, and by the time they have come forward to you, they are begging for help on how to handle this situation and I think it's um like you said, and not only is it a teachable spirit as a as a pastor, as a church leader, as a shepherd, but I think there comes a point where the argument that I didn't understand abuse starts to become. Moot. Like at some point, we have a responsibility as leaders to understand this issue because it is so prevalent. Because the statistics say one in three women and one in four men. Because when we add in psychological abuse, it becomes 50% of the US population that's experienced it. Like at some point, we are responsible for becoming educated, for understanding these issues. And I think as a church specifically, If we want to say that we care about marriages, if we want to say we value marriage, we have to care about the issue of domestic violence. We have to, because it is one of the most common things plaguing marriages.
2: Oh, a hundred percent. And it it leads me into how do I step away? How do I separate from this and not feel a sense of shame or guilt or condemnation upon myself and from others. How do I step back when I know the church will reject me, uh, ministry stops, and in my case, hate mail comes? Well, not easy. But I began to address my sense of self-worth with Bible verses. In particular, Psalm 139, 13 to 14, where fearfully and wonderfully And I read Psalm 139 as if Christ was speaking it, not just David. Someone else was telling me what I was, and I was listening to this outside voice and questioning myself and getting confused. And then reading that over and over and over and over, and it's coming in deeper and deeper in the relationship between Christ and me being restored. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. the Christian's physical body is the temple of God. What did that mean? I read it in my head for a long time. (laughs) Then that became food going into my heart. And then I began to take care of myself as the recipient of mistreatment. I wasn't going to allow what was going on to happen again. And that began to shift into the courage to step back when there wasn't any support. Because, let me just say this, because I was wrong in the Mm -hmm. eyes of Mm -hmm. the church, where I worked, my spouse, I was wrong in their eyes. But Jesus began to teach. It's not so because honestly, Hannah, your words about how she does want to honor the sanctity of marriage is so real, so true. I stepped back because there was mistreatment, and it wasn't stopping. So I didn't destroy the marriage by attempting to stop the abuses. I didn't destroy the marriage by stepping away. The responsibility laid on the abuse, the mistreatment. That's what destroyed the marriage.
1: Yes. And I think even when we say the word separation, I would argue that the separation was created first by the abusive partner and in every meaningful way they have abandoned that relationship because they have created an environment, a culture inside of the relationship, whereby even if they are maintaining a very tight sense of control over the, the wife, over the partner, right? Wherein they are keeping them close by because they are something that is serving them and serving their purposes and serving to fill the well of need that the abuser has for worship, or. Being catered to for having a nice clean house, for having dinner on the table, for raising a kid, whatever it is, even though they are physically keeping them near, they have, in all meaningful spiritual, emotional, and covenant related ways, created a break in that relationship. They have created an internal separation. All that the wife is doing when she walks away eventually is putting in a physical boundary where there was already a spiritual divide, where there was already a broken covenant. And I would also say that for, again, this is tying back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about faith and works being inseparable things, that the works being the fruit that comes out of the interior, out of the heart, out of the motivation. I would say for all intents and purposes, an abusive person who has unrepentant, continually abusive behaviors is exhibiting a dead faith. I'm not gonna get into whether or not they're saved. That is between them and God, and we cannot possibly know. But I would say they are exhibiting a dead faith due to the rotted fruit that is persistently showing up in their life through their misuse of power and control and authority through the way they are demeaning and diminishing their spouse. I would say in that situation, a wife is free to leave that relationship. That said, it's a complex situation. Like you said, Anne, there is a lot of cost that comes hmm. with walking away from a marriage. And there is a lot of external costs from how people are going to view you, from the way you're going to be perceived, from whether or not you're supported by your church or your faith leaders. But there's also an internal grief around that marriage being lost. And I think especially when victims are blamed or a lot of guilt or shame is put on them as it is for relationship issues, wherein they are taught to believe that they are responsible for all of the problems in the relationship, there can be an immense amount of guilt about being the one who either legally says undone or through separation for a time season or permanently creates that physical separation, that physical walking away. There's a lot of burden that comes with that. And it is very easy for an abusive partner to say, they're the ones who killed the marriage. They're the ones who called it quits. They're the ones who filed the divorce papers. But again, you have to somehow inside of yourself come to the realization that, that is not your responsibility. You are just doing an external showing of what has internally already occurred.
0: Yeah, and all of what the both of you are speaking to in this does for the victim, this lie really is a deep, deep grief. In the victim sense, they're not, as you guys both have said so clearly, they're not destroying the marriage. They were trying to preserve it because they saw what was dark and they were trying to bring it to the light for the sake of preservation of a marriage and the preservation of a family. I thought of something and I know it's
2: time, to Close, But in in terms of something that you may want to address is about the divorce question, because it's very imperative to take when Jesus says he hates divorce, to take it into the context in which he spoke it and what he meant by that. And who was he talking to? And what was he talking about? Because that was a very specific area that we don't address well.
0: Back in Kristen's story a couple podcasts ago, she references, I believe, a sermon that addresses that very thing.
1: You are 100% correct. Back in Kristen's story, we talked briefly about it um, in the actual audio, but if you're just looking for access to that sermon series, I think we actually put a couple of articles as well that were written um, on the subject of divorce and instances of abuse. Those are all linked in the show notes. So you can also just visit that podcast and click through to gain access to some of those resources. That's a nice, quick, easy way to sort of introduce yourself to the subject.
2: So true. Now it's incumbent to listen and to believe her, just to believe her and get the story and hear the themes and support how healing that is.
0: And this is where I'm so thankful for the many victims that you worked with, but your posture in, in coming alongside of them, joining them. I love when you say things and like, okay, you've said such and such. I sense a theme here. Now, let's just pause here. And I wonder what the Lord would want you to know in that. I wonder what he would say about that, and you pause with them, and you wait with them, and you join them in listening to the Spirit in that moment, that right there, I think, is a beautiful example of walking with a victim in recovery. Mm -hmm. And that helps them see that the Holy Spirit is alive in them reminds them and the truth of the spirit gets exposed in that moment and they speak we're full circle now we're coming back to
1: what we talked about in part one okay yep so at least when we're talking about the roles of of pastors of leaders of shepherds so much of this comes down to how you view your position in relation to a victim and one of the misconceptions about advocacy that i often teach on mm-hmm. is advocates don't speak on behalf of the victim they help a victim recover their own unique voice and they amplify it. and mm-hmm. when i think about the role of a pastor the role of a church leader the role of an authority figure in a spiritual context it is not to be the one that tells you what god thinks but instead how do I come alongside of you and help usher you into the presence of God? How do I help usher you into an understanding of scripture? How do I help amplify your voice and your understanding? And so it's, do you see yourself as an advocate or do you see yourself as an authoritarian? Those two things are incompatible. One is going to breed spiritual abuse and one is going to breed discipleship
2: and I often say, I am not you. And many times I am asked for advice. I don't give advice. Let me say it this way. I am not them. I hear the themes and I connect, yes, but I'm not that individual. So I'll ask questions. Jesus taught the art of the question. Then that person can bring out what is already in there that has been buried in deep and not expressed, maybe for the first time. But in terms of advice, I'll say, have you considered, have you given this any thought? What are your thoughts about this idea? Leaving it completely and utterly up to her to put it somewhere in her world where if I try, I might misfit it or misinterpret it or think I know something that I really actually can say. I don't don't have a clue. But the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit of Christ does in her. And sometimes the questions are hard and telling, but they're never, ever... From accusation never
1: i think to round off this conversation again this comes into having a humble heart as as a spiritual leader or as an advocate or as a supporter or as a friend or whatever and really recognizing we have an opportunity here to help someone who's hurting draw near to christ and for them to be reminded that Christ has already drawn near to them?
2: Yes, because we're all you're listening for, is she safe? What are you hearing? Is she fearful? That takes it to a whole different level of allowing her to make the choice, but to let her know clearly that you're hearing her fear. Mm-hmm. You're hearing whether she thinks she's safe or not. And so there's options for that. And that's what you open up. See yourself as a door, not a wall.
1: You're not the wall that they're bouncing against and going back into a dangerous situation. Be the door that opens up into safety and health and well being. Correct. Well, it is just always, it is always a delightful pleasure to sit and talk with you and um, really just have these deep rich conversations about incredibly complex topics that are challenging and and deep and spiritual so thank you so much for coming and and sharing with us and speaking with
0: us i appreciate you having me back thank you so much yeah it's remarkable to be together with you thank you guys
1: You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary
0: House to Heart. This podcast
1: is a production of House of Faith and Freedom with your hosts, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, please check out our website, houseoffaithandfreedom.org.